Welcome to episode 91 of the Oklahoma City Real Estate Show. On today's show, I chat with Sarah Wheeler about the possible future forecast for the housing market after the election. Sarah is the editor-in-chief for Housing Wire, a premier information resource for the mortgage and investor industry tracking progress across the nation on their platform. Very exciting guest to have on the show today. Before we go to that interview, I want to talk to you a little bit about two new restaurants entering the scene here in Oklahoma City. From the middle of America, welcome to the Oklahoma City Real Estate Show. Covering local market data, news, and reports to arm you with information you need to empower your investing and strengthen your American rights. Top Realtor. Here is your host, Landon Witt. For more information and to listen or watch online, visit OKCRealEstateShow.com. Jimmy B's is the name of the restaurant, coming to hit Automobile Alley. Jimmy B's is a new concept from Hal Smith Restaurants, which operates OKC Hotspots, Mahogany, Prime Steakhouse, Ch Charleston's, and Red Rock Canyon Grill. Located in the former Mercedes showroom on Broadway in downtown Oklahoma City, Jimmy B's is small in size, but big in spirit. The sleek and casual atmosphere will boast of a low-slung, exposed wood beams, comfortable deep leather banquets, and retro brick walls. Jimmy B's has an inviting room look, tasteful art, flattering lighting, and a relaxed vibe where lunch and dinner conversations swirl. You can look for that in 2021, Another interesting restaurant hitting the uh, 2021 market. Uh, you know, dining out is meant to be fun, but often dining out with your pets is not an option. Well, it will be in 2021. Red Solo Pup, a new concept from Oklahoma City natives, Julian Thomas will debut in the Chisholm Creek Development Center in spring 2021. It will feature a spacious off-leash dog park and a restaurant bar, which will allow for adequate social distancing. Two years ago, our five-year-old dog, she says, Solo, unexpectedly passed away. His death was unfortunate reminder that life is short and we should be spending as much time as possible with loved ones, dogs included. Dogs are away family and and with our goal, our goal with the concept is to bring Oklahoma City families together in a way that's never been possible before. Red Solo Pup will honor Solo in both name and spirit, acting as a communal space where dogs and their owners can play and eat together. Red Solo Pup combines a 1.1 acre off-leash dog park with an on-site restaurant and bar. The unique space will open in the Chisholm Creek Development Center in spring of 2021. How about that for entrepreneurial spirit and the economic oof to go for that, or should I say, wolf? Okay, welcoming our guest, Sarah Wheeler from Housing Wire. 
She's the editor-in-chief there at the premier information source for really the housing ecosystem. They're responsible for covering everything from the mortgage industry to uh, Fannie and Freddie Mac, what they're doing with interest rates, all the way down to what affordable housing is doing across America. Sarah is going to talk to us today a little bit about what the presidential elections could do to the market and kind of some ideas of either direction in which we could go. Sarah, welcome to the show today. Thank you so much for having me on, Landon. Really excited to speak to your audience. You bet. And now at the time of this recording, we're right at November 11th, and no formal president has actually been announced. Now, they've been announced, but no one's conceded yet. So we don't quite know what January for holds at this point. We have some good ideas. So we're going to keep this kind of options open on either side. If Trump continues to be president, what are some things, just a brief summary of what are some things that will continue to keep going with the Trump campaign? I I think the biggest thing for our space would be the exit out of conservatorship for Fannie and Freddie. I think that that is one of the things that has obviously been on their priority list and um, the current FHFA director um, is very is very focused on that. It's one of his uh, strategic goals. Um, but you know that that's a big question. Uh, if if they had four more years, that seems very reasonable. If they have two more months or two and a half more months, that seems a, like a, a much dicier proposal. But I think from my perspective, the that exit is probably the biggest thing for our space that would stay the same. And then also when we look at the, some of the regulatory bodies, um, there's been quite a pullback of regulation, um, depending on which, what you're looking at. And so I think that that's the other thing that would continue that that people in our space are really interested in. On that, for those that aren't familiar with what a conservatorship is, some people might think that's just, well, that's someone that when my loved one loses their mind, you know, that they're legally appointed to make decisions on their behalf. But talk to us just briefly on what that is. Uh, I believe that was started in 2008 with President Bush. Um, Talk to us a little bit for those that don't know what that is. So yeah, bringing them into conservatorship was just, um, it, it actually had to happen or, or our whole system would likely collapse, right, with the financial crisis. So bringing them in and, and really um, having a, a, ba- a taxpayer backstop for those two things meant that there was still going to be liquidity in the market and that they could still buy loans um, and, and thus keep the whole housing ecosystem going. But by bringing them into the conservatorship, um, the government swept all of their profits, um, until I think two years ago, maybe three years ago now. Um, so everything, so so for the first couple of years, they were just paying back basically, you know, the, the bailout that they got from the government. But after that, as, as the housing industry recovered, they started making more money and the government took all, swept all their profits and, um, and they haven't been able to um, put anything into their own capital reserves um, until about three years ago. And so now um, the, the goal is to, what the Trump administration would like to do is to capitalize, make sure they have enough capital and and get them out of conservatorship so they could be private companies. Um, you know, they've always had that sort of, they're a government-sponsored enterprise, so they've never been completely private. Um, but right now, they're they're not private at all. So so by getting them out of conservatorship, what you're doing there is is really just opening up a whole different kind of finance system. And, and you know, Logan Motoshami, who's our lead a- analyst at HousingWire, he's really made the point that if they had been out of conservatorship during COVID, we would all be in big trouble. Because, you know, the reason that we were able to step in and do so much was because of Fannie and Freddie. We're, 
we're, you know, the government could say, hey, this is what you need to do. And this is what we're going to we're going to mm -hmm. decide to do with uh, forbearance. Um, if there were private companies, you know, beholden to shareholders, how would that work? So um, you, you've got definitely some, you know, this year gave us some more pause about is that the best idea to even make them private companies when you have this kind of shock coming. Um, so. Yeah, and I think that's the biggest thing. Um, if Trump continues, then that process will continue. And this is so that everybody's tracking on the same page. This is Freddie and Fannie Mac. These are the, the the buyers of the mortgages once your loan origination occurs. If you're buying a single family home or you're buying multiple homes, your lo loan originator is the one that's giving, creating that loan. And then that institution typically sells that off to then get their money back so that they can deploy it into the marketplace. So it's extremely important that that second tier stays very stable, because if you don't have that second tier stable, you run into that first tier then runs out of cash, and it immediately stops and holds the housing market. So I could see the argument on either side. What are the benefits Trump's trying to say in why it needs to be a free marketplace? Well, I mean, right now, you know, there, there's very few private investors. I mean, they can't compete, right? I mean, Fannie and Freddie have the, the market locked up. And um, so I understand from just a free market perspective, um, getting more investors in there. Um, and before COVID, I mean, I could really see it. Like, you know, why are they still in conservatorship? They've they've paid back what they what they got, you know, bailed out for. And then they've paid back way more than that and, and gave the Treasury a whole bunch of money. And now that they now that they're being able to keep some of their profits, why shouldn't they go back into um, you know, why shouldn't they be public companies again? But, you know, you did have people who were like, hey, but we bailed them out. And so, yes, they've paid that money back. But, you know, it's still there's still a lot of controversy there. But definitely, I mean, you are you are locking up the, the mortgage money into two companies, basically. And this so, is both on government backed loans and, and conventional loans. Right. Yeah. So you could literally see if more options on the second tier of the mortgage back, you know, the mortgage industry, you could see more options for borrowers that maybe are less than ideal. Yeah. And we do have some of those. I mean, we do have some of those investors, right? But mm -hmm. it's just not a, a huge part of the market. And sure. there's not a lot of appetite for that. But yeah, so for the conventional, you know, the, it's all Fannie and Freddie are going to set the set the pace there of what they expect. And, and that keeps things very safe. There's, you know, that their standards are are uh, pretty safe and secure at this point. So, I mean, there, there are benefits both ways. If you were an investor in the GSEs before they got swept, you definitely want them to come out of conservatorship. Mm. You want some of your money back, but mm. you know that that is a that's not your normal. I mean, that's that's a sure. That's a long hold position. <laughs> so it's widely believed we're not quite affirmative on this, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's widely believed that Biden and the Biden administration, if there was to be a Biden administration, would keep the GSEs under the conservative ship, and there would be no question that's what they would pursue. Is that is that kind of everybody's on the same page with that? Yeah, I, I agree, at least for the foreseeable future. You know, mm -hmm. if there was an eight-year Biden, you know, if, if it was Biden and then Harris, whatever it was, if you had eight years of Democratic control, I concede that towards the end of the first four years, maybe there would be some, you know, once we get farther away from COVID, the problem is you have all these loans and forbearance and you have these plans that have been set up, you know, um, that again, they wouldn't be possible except that you have Fannie and Freddie there. So I, I just think that, um, I'm not saying that Biden would never do it. I just think that it's a, it, 
he has not said that's a priority, whereas the Trump administration from day one said this is our priority and made it part of the um, FHFA's strategic plan, st strategic goals that they needed. So we're talking about uh, things that would affect somebody in, let's say, three, four or five years uh, by the time that kind of trickles. Let's talk about interest rates for a minute, which is a very hot topic. Um, there, I've heard both sides of the story that, hey, January, you know, you want to get all the deals done before January. And then I've heard another voice saying there's no physical way the market can afford an interest rate rise. So don't even worry about it. What is your comments on that? Yeah, so everything that we've, uh, everyone we've talked to, everything we've reported on is that uh, we can expect these kinds of low rates through at least this time next year, but probably all the way through to 2022. Um, you know, so so we're keeping, you know, it's the Federal Reserve that is keeping these um, keeping these rates low for a reason. And so, you know, they've they've been very clear. They just had they just released their minutes from their their most recent uh, meeting, and it's clear that they are keeping on this path. And they've been very vocal about keeping on this path, so that everybody can kind of plan on that and and not, you know, not disrupt the markets, not, you know, just have some stability and know that this is what the plan is going forward. So the reasons that some of what I heard spiraling around was the, um, there's simply not enough inventory uh, and the economy is too fragile. So what, where is that inventory market? I mean, I know in our particular market in the Midwest, we've just been at historic lows in inventory. Is there is there a builder sentiment? I mean, we're getting a lot of momentum with builders now, where they're all they all have a lot of faith that if they build it, they'll buy it. Uh, are we going to change that at all? I mean, or is inventory yeah, so doomed? We had, we had a housing where our annual segment. Um, it was a virtual event that we had, and we had you know an industry experts talking about the inventory shortage, and the short answer is. Good luck. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, we're less than three months of inventory and most, you know, nationally and in, in many places, it's it's much tighter than that. And even in markets that, you know, you talk about the Midwest, even in places that you wouldn't necessarily expect to be such huge hot markets, uh, the Southeast is, is very much like that. So, so away from the coast and uh, we're seeing very low inventory, the builders are definitely um, motivated right now to, to start some building, but you have to look at, you know, what kind of houses are they building? It's still very expensive to build a house when you look at land costs and also lumber costs. Um, even though we had this lumber fluctuation recently, uh, traditionally, they, I think they, they went up 160% this year since April, uh, the cost of lumber, which has added $1,600 to every house that's built just, just, just for the, the rise in lumber, much less other things. And so again, what, what are they going to be building? And then how does that really help the inventory? That only helps if you can afford that, that higher, uh, higher priced home, or if you move up and someone can move into your house. So, um, Still not seeing a lot of a lot of inventory for first-time home buyers. There's just not the inventory there. Sure. Um, so I, we do have good builder sentiment. We do have, mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, everyone thinks it's going to get better, but better by small degrees, not better to like really change the the mm -hmm. calculus on home prices um, that we're seeing going forward. Now, according to uh, Biden's website, the former vice president has promised to invest $640 billion over the next 10 years so that Americans can have, quote, access to housing that is affordable, stable, safe and healthy, accessible, energy efficient and resilient. Now, that's some bold promises there. Is there any details right. to this plan? 
Yeah, no, um, we don't have a lot of details. Maybe there are details. We've looked, we've tried to look into it and say, okay, well, again, um, you can see some of that. There, There is already a, a growing sentiment for green housing. Um, we've seen green housing um, is just now more affordable. So um, you do have people asking for it, but also if it's gonna, if it's gonna save you money as a builder, if it's gonna be, I mean, you're just seeing that sort of rise on its own separate from this. We know that Biden is um, going to prioritize anything to do with climate change. So the green housing you can see there, that that safe green housing, whatever he said there. Affordable housing is a little bit more of a, um, a question mark. What does that look mm -hmm. like? Is that building a lot of uh, multifamily units and you know uh, doing infill in dense areas? Is that increasing density by you know making a, a something from the federal level about you know accessory dwelling units um, in different parts where we've seen that you know very that's a very local issue at this point. Mm -hmm. And you know we see um, Los Angeles. Uh, uh, just approve that. And so you've seen other people follow suit, San Diego, other places in California. Um, so You're talking really with like the accessory dwelling units where they're putting a, yes. they're, yeah. they're, they're lifting the restrictions on, Hey, you can, you can put grandma in your backyard. Now you can build a house. Correct. And, yeah. and really, as opposed to grandma, it's probably, you know, a young worker who just otherwise mm. can't afford to live in, in California. And now mm -hmm. not only are you um, housing somebody, but you're building up equity yourself as right. a homeowner. So it's it's really a um, it's an interesting thing to do. And it's really one of the only things that you can see short term. I mean, long term, there's got to be something mm -hmm. done about affordable housing short term. Right. That's an option that is that can be done very quickly and cheaply. Sure. Well, I think we can all agree that the regulation in the industry has, you know, you've got companies like uh, Icon 3D we had on the show, Jason Bollard out of Austin, Texas with 3D printing technology, who did the first 3D printed home in Austin, Texas, one of the highest regulated towns in Texas. And and we, they got all the way uh, building it until they needed the occupancy certificate and they got stopped. And now they're perfecting the method in Mexico because because there's very, very, you know, regulations in a lot of their counties over there, whatever they call them. And, and they're doing 50 homes there now. And they've been printing those over the last uh, eight months. And they actually had an earthquake proving that that method was earthquake resistant. And so there's a lot of new technology coming from the private sector. But this regulation, so, I mean, this whole thing of alter a spate of res restrictive zoning laws to increase development, I think both candidates are going to have to to get that figured out because when you're telling somebody hey the international residential building code uh based off of unefficient appliances and da 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 and you have to build this you know criteria when technology has has spread the gap to where a 3d printed wall can print it and maybe we don't care that much that it doesn't have a whole lot of insulation because the efficiency of an air conditioning system is like 100 times greater than when that law was written. So that type of discussion back and forth, and we talk about that with investors, is we need the ability to build container-type homes. You know, the things we have to do, I talked to a developer what was it? Two days ago, she made the Oklahoma in a newspaper here uh, article talking about her her retail development, and it was it was 16 containers. They brought the containers in, and they were going to do a shopping center. And this is green, as green as you can get it, because it's already built, right? You're literally right. reusing these millions of containers that are around the world. But by the time she made that project hit the regulations of the you know the insulation requirements, it was actually more affordable to fake 
that it was built out of containers. And, and they're literally building the project to fake like it is a renewable source because it was so much more expensive to actually make it renewable that they simply couldn't afford the project. And that's an example where we've just we've got to get that out uh, to everybody. Uh, on yeah, I, I, that is a great example. It's just that the whole thing is how do you solve that at the local level? So you can do all right. you want from a federal level, but you know, I right. mean, it's it's down to even HOAs, it's down to neighborhoods, it's down to I mean. The, but if the, that type of verbiage can get on television, right? Local folks will vote more educated in that manner of saying maybe it is regulation that's stopping this, and part of it is is our insurance. Uh, industry is it just needs to really rethink a lot of their policies because Jason Bollard's in Austin, Texas, that concrete wall, his latest models say it, it can withstand 220 mile an hour winds and be on fire for 16 hours before any damage is done to that property. Can you imagine what that looks like in the hands of an insurance adjuster or an investor that's making a decision on whether to carry insurance on a property or not that he owns in cash? Well, and can you imagine the difference that would make in California right now if you were if you were making homes out of that, which are basically fireproof, um, you know. So this tax do. credit, moving on to the tax, the $15,000, the Biden campaign is wanting to offer every first-time homebuyer and, quote, every black and Hispanic homebuyer, that's from the website, First-time homebuyers, black and Hispanic homebuyers. I know if I put on my website that I was offering tours for first-time homebuyers, black and Hispanic homebuyers, I would get a bunch of letters, but that's a whole separate story. That accounts to $25 billion annually injected into the closing cost of the average American. What is that about, and, and is that going to help? Yeah, um, you know, certainly the down payment, I mean, they've identified that the down payment is one of the biggest barriers to homeownership for first-time homebuyers. They're not coming with, you know, with any uh, equity from another home, right? So that makes sense. Um, to me, the devil is in the details here because this one is not a tax credit like we've done before, like you had under Obama and Bush. But um, this is actually something that happens at closing. So at the closing table, and it's like a, a, an actual cash transaction somehow from the government to the lender. Mm. That just seems fraught with peril to me. And, mm. and all the lenders I've talked to have been like, I mean, you talk about making the closing process harder. I, I don't know how it gets harder than that. But we think that, you know, you look at those two Senate races, um, of course, the the um, Democrats control the House. But in the, in the Senate, there is right now, um, you know, it's a, we think that it's going to go Republican. It's already it's deadlocked. Those two Georgia seats will are the toss up, but they look like they're going to stay in Republican hands at that point. How does he get that through Mitch McConnell? I, I don't know. Um, maybe there will be something like we've done before under the Bush administration where there was a, a tax credit that came. You got once you once you came to tax time and it was like eight thousand dollars or seventy five hundred dollars. So hmm. um, maybe that's the way that you do it. But, you know, this is a it's a great idea. I think it gets a lot of attention, the, the chances of it actually passing seem very slim to me and to the people that I've talked to. I know anybody who's a realtor or has recently bought a home or is saving to buy a home, closing costs are a big deal. 
In fact, that's yep. the number one thing as realtors we get is why in the world are the closing costs so high? I mean, they, you know, FHA, we just wrote a deal for a $100,000 home, which to a lot of you on the East Coast, you go, what in the world? But in, in the Midwest, you still have $100,000 homes. And it's only $2,900 down payment on a home like that or 3200 But then you have all these closing costs that now it makes it $8,000 for this person to have to bring. And you've got this FHA, wonderful first-time homebuyer product. And then you have, you know, this low, low, low 3.5% down payment. And then all of a sudden you throw on the closing cost and it jumps from, oh, you could get into this house for $3,000, which a lot of us can do that, especially in February when we get the, you get the tax uh, credit back for your kids and you may get $2,500 extra injected into your, your bank account. And now you've only got to save $500 more. Right. And you're there. But then, boom, you get hit with these closing costs. We got to prepay your escrow for the next year. You got to prepay all this insurance, you know, and then you're going to pay it on your monthly payment. And don't worry, you know, it, it, it might not go up in the future, but it might. So, you know, blah, blah. so I get it. Like if we can inject, let's say, five thousand dollars into this, like the majority of home buyers that are that are, are renters that could be home buyers could be altered. Fifteen thousand. That's crazy. $15,000 is insane. 5,000, 7,000, now we're talking. And I and I I don't know. Has Trump talked about this? I mean, is Trump going to help? Never been no, as far as I know, he has not answered this sort of like, hey, this is what they're doing cuz you know, mm -hmm. I, I I have not seen that anywhere. Right. And and that's not what he did. We do know that if you're trying to save for that first time home, um, you know, you're the rate of how homes are going increasing and um, the home values are going up. You're you're being out you can't catch up, right? Mm -hmm. if, if you're saving a certain amount a year and it's going up by five or seven or 10%, right. how are you going to increase your, it's just, it's a no-win situation. So from that perspective, I can see how first-time tax, first-time homebuyer tax credit is a great idea. But to your point, how are you going to pay for it? Right. Um, what does that look like? Um, and, and is that even a possibility through a Mitch McConnell-led uh, Senate? I don't know. Well, we've got to get we've got to get some more competition on the field. We've got to get some more players when it comes to financing. The, really, the only option that most Americans are facing right now, and most, if you're flipping a home, you need to understand. You flipped the home. Before you flip the home, you need to understand your micro community and how financing is working with that income group. What does your home look like? Who are you attracting as your buyers? And how are those buyers financing your home that you're selling? If you don't understand those three things, you have got to educate yourself on that part because you are going to be looking, you're going to be working in reverse and 10 times as hard if you don't understand what hoops your buyer has to go through. And if we can get this, the conservative to, or the, um, the, uh, the uh, Fannie Mae out and in more of these kind of free market, I think, I may be wrong, but I think it may give us some more options on the playing field of this lower closing cost and higher monthly payment at the end, because then we can allow for a higher debt to income ratio, because we can then take into consideration this is what they were paying as they were renting, right? And some other ideas, I think. Well, Sarah, it's been wonderful having you on the show today. Can you think of anything as, you know, you're hearing a lot of stuff. You've got journalists in the field pounding the industry, talking with top professionals. What is going on right now that we have not covered? Um, you know that we have so many mortgage companies uh, going public, IPOs. 
Um, so just today, Loan Depot announced that it is going public. Um, there were rumors about that. We thought it was going to happen. It is, in fact, happening. Hmm. They're the ones who kind of famously in 2015 pulled back from an IPO right before they went public. Um, and so, you know, that's just a testament to how strong the housing market is right now and um, and how how much origination volume there has been this year that that this many of you know mortgage lenders which is you know not usually a sexy topic that people are like yeah let's bring those public mm-hmm. um it, it's just been phenomenal i think there are seven in the last maybe five in the last uh, two months so it's it's a it's a hot topic what's the sales pitch to an investor on on buying an ipo stock or buying a stock in a in a, in a mortgage company yeah, you know, uh, I'm not the right person to ask on that. I don't know, but um, we have seen a whole different kind of mm-hmm. um, investor. So instead mm-hmm. of, uh, I think Loan Depot is doing a, a traditional IPO, but other other companies like mm-hmm. um, U- UWM are doing uh, what are called um, SPAC loans. Mm-hmm. So they're like blank check companies that are coming on as investors. It's a whole different kind of um a way to go. Public. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this out there just because I've done an extensive amount of work with Zillow and and I feel like it's a very amazing um, orchestration of a lot of smart folks and data analysts and I've also done a lot of work with the CEO of Redfin so we have these like two big things and I think I think the 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 I think why mortgage companies are going for the IPO now is with Zillow's announcement of their in-house mortgage company. I think they've realized that there is a big opportunity for Zillow in this space. And if you don't have the ability to market in 2021 and go against this whole in-house, hey, we got we got a house that we own. We have a mortgage company that we own. We got a realtor on staff, one-stop shop with a good name that you trust that you've been browsing at. You know, I mean, Zillow is the, I mean, it's, it's like porn for women. I mean, it just... <laughs> It's, well, they get to the consumer first, right? They, that is the thing. They we just, are. We wrote, yeah, we wrote a, a story when they came out with the third quarter results last week. Um, we wrote a story on the fact that they made a lot of money in refis. And right. I don't even think it's a look for refis. Refis, what? But, hey, you're sitting there looking at houses. They're like, hey, what about, what about refining the current house? That you, you're there. They've already got you. So um, Quarter yeah, three I, of this year was there. They made $240 million for the first time. as the highest, uh, you know, quarter that they made. Keller Williams, same thing. You know, they did their, their highest. And both of those companies have something in common in that they have apps in the hand. And they're thinking about processing their customers' data life cycle. They're really yeah. into the whole life cycle of a consumer, understanding that, using artificial intelligence. So I think Loan Depot, this is a flare. This is somebody firing it off going, we have got to get creative and we have to have an ad spend budget. Because I was thinking about the only thing a mortgage company needs investment money in is really advertising. That's the only thing they really can't write out into loans carefully. They got to get private money so that they can do things like hire the ad agency with Geico to create a new branding. So I would be surprised if 2021 turns into the who can have the greatest ad campaign out of the mortgage industry uh similar to what we saw with rocket mortgage coming out during the what was it the super bowl they launched a you know these i mean super mortgage companies super bowl ads you just you wouldn't have thought of that and 2021 i bet we see it sarah thank you so much for your time today um it's a pleasure Uh, i'd love to have you on the show again in the future I enjoyed it too. Thank you so much. Folks, that was Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at Housing Wire, your premier source for real estate information. Thanks for watching the show. For more information and to listen or watch online, visit OKCRealEstateShow.com.